mostly fun. A man had two sons, and the younger son did something something incredibly, deeply offensive to his father. Something so shocking, so unthinkable that that son knew that by doing this thing, he would brand himself an outcast to his family and his village. But he didn't care. What did he do? He went to his father and he demanded that his father give him his share of the state immediately. He wanted his inheritance right now while his father was still living. It was unprecedented. It was incredibly disrespectful and really hateful. He's basically saying to his father, I wish you were dead so that way I can have the stuff. I don't really care about you, but I like the stuff. I want the money now. The next shocking thing about the story is the way the father reacts. He doesn't grab that young man by the scruff of the neck and shake some sense into him. He doesn't berate him or punish him in any way. He gives him his share of the inheritance. He just gives it to him. And the young man cashes out his share of the estate and leaves home to go to a foreign place to spend all his wealth on all the things that he's so sure is going to make him happy. It didn't work out. It didn't take long for him to run through that big money roll, spending it all on wild, frivolous living. And when he sobered up, he found himself broke, broken. No money, no friends, no future. Homeless, helpless, hopeless. And he realized that he had ruined his life. And the only job he could get was feeding pigs. And for a young Jewish boy, that's as low as it gets. Racked by hunger and regret, he remembered his father. He remembered how patient and kind and loving his father had always been to him. And he said to himself, well, may- maybe I can just go home. And I'll tell dad, I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. I know that. But what I'm asking you is, would you hire me to be one of the, one of the servants? And then I could save whatever I'm paid and, and pay all of it back that I've, that I've wasted. But But he knew the debt was so great, it seemed impossible he could ever save enough to repay it. And even if he could save enough money to pay back the financial debt, how could he ever pay for the disrespect, for the ungratefulness, for the hatefulness that he'd shown his father? So he slumped down in that pigsty in despair, thinking, There's no hope for me. And then he heard a familiar voice far in the distance calling his name. He looked up, and lo and behold, what he saw in the distance was his older brother. His older brother's calling out his name, waving to him. His brother gets to him, 
climbs right in the pigsty, throws his arms around him, and he says, Come home with me, my brother. Father and I, we've missed you. With tears streaming down his face, the young man climbs out of that pigsty with his brother and follows him home to be reunited with his father. Wait a minute. Wait, I I know what you're thinking. That's not how the story goes. And you're right. The older son in the parable Jesus told in Luke 15 does not go after his brother. It's quite the opposite. He gets very angry when his wayward brother does return home and receives this lavish welcome from their father. In his self-righteousness, no way he's going to join in the celebration. He's not going to offer even a hint of grace to his brother. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, which is very, very good, I highly recommend it, he writes, Jesus is inviting thoughtful listeners to ask, who should have gone out and searched for the lost son? Keller suggests that a true elder brother should have said and would have said, Father, my younger brother's been a fool, and now his life is in ruins, but I'll go look for him, and I'll bring him home. And if his inheritance is gone, as I expect that it is, I'll bring him back into the family at my own expense, because after all, the rest of the inheritance was his. Now, how does Keller know that? I mean, Jesus, Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't explain that the, that's what the parable meant. Luke, who records the parable, offers no commentary to that effect on the, on the story. Well, what Tim Keller's doing is he's reading between the lines and he's looking at the big picture of what the gospel is and he's remembering Hebrews chapter 2. After affirming the glorious divinity of the Son in chapter 1. In chapter 2, the author of Hebrews turns to the shocking humanity of the Son, our true brother, who did indeed leave heaven to come find each one of us and bring us home to our Father at his own expense. This is the third in the series from Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews, he sets out, I think, to, uh, to answer some of the essential theological questions that form the foundation of our faith. We've got to know not just why we believe what we believe, but we've got to know what it is we actually believe. What is the gospel in any way? It's all about who is this Jesus and what has he done on our behalf? Is this life of believing in and following Christ a truly better way? Well, the author picks up on the theme that he began in chapter 1, that the Son is better than or greater than uh, the angels. And I want to pick up uh, chapter 2. I want to skip down and pick up with verse 5. It's a longish kind of reading, and he's going to quote Old Testament, some Psalms, and from Isaiah. And So hang with it. You've got to focus with me, all right? Here we go. Hebrews chapter 2, pick up with verse 5. 
It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now that's a mouthful. There's a lot there. I can't possibly, in this one message, answer all the questions that come to mind as we read through uh, that passage. But I want to answer a few. And I want to begin in verse 10 where Jesus is called the author of their, or our, salvation. The Greek word translated author by the NAV is archegos. And it can also mean captain, or founder, or pioneer. William Barclay, he likes pioneer. He writes about it. He says, one basic idea clings to the word in all its uses. And archegos is one who begins something in order that others may enter into it. He begins a family that someday others may be born into it. He founds a city in order that others may someday dwell in it. He is the author of blessings into which others may also enter. And Archegos is one who blazes a trail for others to follow. And that trail is that Christ opened is the exclusive way to God by His grace through faith in Him alone. And He can do that because He knows every step of the trail and He knows it from first-hand experience. Only Christ could achieve our salvation by becoming fully human, not taking upon Himself the nature even of an angel but being made like his brethren in every respect. The author's argument, and what he's quoting here, is Psalm 8, that Nicole, Elder Nicole, I should say, uh, read to us in Psalm 8. 
He's quoting that Old Testament scripture. He quoted other Old Testament scripture in chapter 1 to emphasize the son's superiority over angels. And then in chapter 2, he reminds us that for a time, he, the son, was made a little lower than the angels, meaning fully human like us. So he is, on the one hand, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being that we read in chapter 1, verse 3. And on the other hand, he is the revelation of humanity and what humanity is intended to be. He fulfills our destiny in his love for and obedience to the Father. And he can only do that by becoming one of us. And really, that's what Christmas is about more than anything else. It's about God becoming humanity, human like us. The New City Catechism, a great, uh, useful resource. You can find it online if you're interested. It puts it this way. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin and that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. The catechism's thinking of this, that last verse of Hebrews 2 there. Now, I want us to look at what he accomplishes, what the Son does on our behalf in becoming fully human. What he does is that he slays our three worst enemies of all mankind. Public enemy number one is sin. The worst tyranny of all is the tyranny of our own sin within us. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, too often in my life, I find myself being my own worst enemy, doing the stupidest things and thinking, why did I do that? I know that's not helpful. I know that's sometimes not right. I know that's going to be counterproductive to my life, and yet I do it anyway. What is the matter with me? That's the kind of tyranny of the sin that runs deep within all of us. Raymond Brown describes sin this way. It is a hostile, destructive, inward power which will always prevent us from being the people we might genuinely want to be. To meet our need of purification from that sin, Christ came as a priest to offer the sacrifice of himself. He makes expiation for the sins of the people. Expiation? What? Okay, I had to look that up too. Expiation? I don't know. I had a clue because I knew how it's translated otherwise. But expiation, it means to give satisfaction to somebody for something done wrong, to make atonement. And that's the word the NIV uses that, that we read. Christ came and he made atonement for our sins. Christ is the high priest who offers himself, becoming at once both the sacrificial lamb to be offered and the high priest who offers it, satisfying the justice of God because God takes justice seriously and gains forgiveness of our sins whereby we can be reconciled to God, have access to God, communion with God. Psalm 63, uh, 65 verse 3 puts it this way. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. 
That's the gospel in one sentence. And it's through Christ that happens. We're overwhelmed by sins and Christ came to pay the price for those sins. He slays sin in our own lives. Public enemy number two, death. Death is the direct result of sin and we're haunted by its constant threat. The fear of death subjects us to bondage. So the Lord Christ Jesus came to, as it says in verse 15 of Hebrews 2, free those, free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. By taking on our nature, by experiencing or tasting death himself, Jesus deals once and for all eternity this monstrous tyrant. And the proof, of course, was the resurrection. That's why at the heart of our faith is always the resurrection of the living Christ because Christ is risen. The Apostle Paul can proclaim in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even for people who don't believe in Christ, you don't, you don't have faith. Sometimes, sometimes death is a welcome end to pain and to suffering. But for those of us who put our faith and trust in Christ, it's more, way more. Death for us is not simply the end of things that were not going so well, bad health, you know, whatever it may be. It's more than that. It is the door to the beginning of new life in the presence of God. Better life. Glorious life. So we can also say with Paul, thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He also came to slay public enemy number three, the devil. As Raymond Brown puts it, Jesus has robbed death of its anguish by defeating the one who constantly makes use of it. The devil is a reality to the biblical writers. Jesus didn't minimize his power or rationalize his sinister influence and in his teaching openly identified him for what he is, a murderer, a liar, a thief. Now ultimately, that victory over the devil is is complete will be destroyed completely. But until then, until then, we recognize that His power is limited here. And so the passage ends with this phrase, a great phrase. He's able to help those who are tempted. Well, I don't know about you. I need help. And I thank God that he comes to help. And how does he help? Well, I think one of the ways he helps is removing our fears or mitigating them. Now, sometimes they rise up in us again, but they don't prevail. Peace and joy and hope and love prevails in the heart that trusts in Christ. He helps us by extending mercy to us. Death 
stokes our fear of the future. What's going to happen? Guilt shackles us to our fear of the past. Are my past sins always going to haunt me? But He has made atonement for our sins for all people so we can be free of those sins. And He shares in our sufferings so that because Christ didn't live a detached life, a life free from adversity or trouble, He knows what life is really like. There are some things you go through this life where nobody else can really understand. But Jesus does. He saves us through his own suffering. We'll come back to that theme later in Hebrews. Everyone needs hope. The belief that the future is going to be better. We have hope that the God who calls us family, says in verse 11, will wake us up after death to live in perfect harmony with Him and each other in a place that will be our true home. That hope is found through faith in Christ alone. And because that hope is found through faith in Christ alone, the author gives us a warning. I skipped over it, but I want to back up to it. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 2. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. That's an interesting picture. The Greek word translated, pay careful attention, prosecho. It can mean to moor a ship. If you don't know what moor means, it's like park the boat, right? It means park the boat. And parareo can, uh, is, is the word translated drift away. And it's a nautical term, they both are, uh, of, the, of a ship carelessly allowed to slip past the harbor, the safe harbor, because the captain has failed to pay attention to the wind and the current or the tide. Because remember, when the writer of Hebrews is writing, all ships were sailing ships. So the captain had to pay careful attention to the wind and the current and the tide. So this verse could be translated, Therefore, we must anchor our lives to the things we've been taught, lest the ship of life drift past the harbor and be wrecked. It's the picture of a ship drifting to destruction, crashing on the rocks because the pilot wasn't paying attention. It seems to me the threat is drifting unintentionally into sin and finding ourselves far from God. Few deliberately in a moment turn their backs on God. It can happen, but I think that doesn't happen often. But I think many drift. They just drift further and further away from God. So we must be continually on the alert against the peril of drifting. Do not lose focus. 
where you would drift and find yourself not losing your salvation, but being far from God. And that's not good. The picture I like the best in this passage, the one that connects most with my soul, though, is not Jesus the trailblazer. It's Jesus the brother. N.T. Wright comments on this passage. He says, It encourages us to see Jesus not as the kind of older brother whom we resent because he's always getting things right and we're always getting things wrong, but as the kind of older brother who without a trace of patronizing or looking down his nose at us comes to find us where we are out of sheer love and goodness of heart to help us out of this mess. Hebrews 2 introduces us again to our true elder brother who is the Son of God who delivers the mercy and the forgiveness we need to be restored to the family of God. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. As I thought about this passage and that picture, you always relate new ideas or teachings to something you already know and experience, right? You have to have a connector. And I have a really good connector to this because I have a brother. I mean, a, a brother. He's two years younger than me. His name is Mike. And as I thought about my brother, I thought, I am so blessed to have had a very, very good brother. A brother who's been my best friend from the time I was a small child, a brother who showed up for me in need. One time I wrecked my car bad, brought a brand new car, wrecked it, upside down, in the middle of the highway, was crazy, crawled out. And, and when bystanders came up before the days of the cell phone and said, do you want me to call somebody for you? I gave them my brother's phone number. Call my brother. He will come. And he did. And there was something that night about seeing my brother show up, knowing nobody cared like he did in that moment. He'd make sure I got home, and he did. I remember some 26 years ago when we were getting ready to plant this church, and the church in Austin that was getting ready to send me out, we had talked about it on an elder board level, but it hadn't been announced yet. And somehow my brother got word of it. And he came to me one Sunday after church. He said, hey, I heard you were going to plant a church in Pflugerville. Is that true? I'm like, how'd you, how'd you find that out? So I just want to know if it's true. Yes. Yes, it's true. It hasn't been announced, but it's true. And he goes, if you go plant a church in Pflugerville, I'm coming with you. I thought, wow. That was incredibly reassuring to know that the guy who knew me better than anybody else in that church, save my wife, wanted to go with me. And when he said, I'm going with you, what he meant was, and what he did was, he sold his house in Austin, moved his family to Pflugerville, and for 20 years served very, very faithfully beside me as an elder. And he was a good elder because he'd fight with me. He, he was not a rubber stamp kind of guy. None of our elders are, by the way. But he, he had ideas, 
and he'd disagree, and we'd wrestle through things, and, and he always stood by me when the meeting was over, always. I know what a good brother is like. Maybe you don't have such a brother. I hope you do. But if you don't, know this. Jesus, the very Son of God, calls you his brother, his sister. And by the way, the gender issue there, don't, don't worry about that. Do you know why he uses the word son uh, so much? Because it's the son who inherits everything. And so all of us in Christ become, that's in Galatians 3. He says, uh, he says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And he goes on down and he says, you know, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. But, so why does he always use that male pronoun? He wants you to know. You're every bit of a part of this, regardless of your gender. Every bit. You get to inherit as well. So you have a brother. And he paid an unthinkable cost to bring each one of us back into the family. I thought about that too. Jesus, the Son of God, looking at me and calling me his brother. I thought, my goodness, there are many names he could call me. <laughs> he could call me sinner, hypocrite, unworthy, fickle, spiritual beggar. And they'd all be right. They'd all, they'd all be fitting. But instead, he calls me brother. And I'm not the only one. He calls you into his family. Put your faith and trust in this Christ Jesus, the Son of the living God. And let's be family together. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty and everlasting Father, it amazes me that Jesus, your Son, fully human and fully divine, would do what he did for me, would call me his brother. I pray, Lord God, for the one here today who might not feel like he or she kind of belongs here or maybe anywhere. I pray, Lord God Almighty, that your spirit would move within the heart of the one who's crying out to you. Would you call me brother or sister? Can I be part of that family? Can I experience that kind of love and mercy and hope and peace that passes all understanding? Can I know and live like you have slain my worst enemies, my own sin and death and the devil who would tempt me and work for my demise? Give me that faith, Lord. Give each one of us that kind of faith 
and the strength to treat each other like we really are brothers and sisters in Christ, which is greater than anything else that can bring us together. In his name we pray, amen. Let's all stand and sing. It is worth coming to church just to sing that song today, I I think. That is one of my favorite songs. I love that song. We come alive when we sing that song. It feels like, here's your homework. Resist drifting. Be intentional about it. That's what it takes. You're saved by grace through faith. It's all Jesus. That's true. But you have to participate and be intentional not to drift. And the tools that God gives us for that are called spiritual disciplines. If you do not use those tools, you will likely find yourself drifting. Prayer, daily. Bible reading, daily. And fellowship, at least weekly. Look, when I haven't seen people in church for a while, and I say, hey, I haven't seen you, where have you been? That never works out very well for me because they always feel guilty, and I don't want them to feel guilty. I just want them to know, hey, I missed you. That's all. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying you're less because you missed. I'm not saying you're the worst sinner. I'm just saying I missed you. That's it. But look, the truth of the matter is, if you are not engaged in worshiping the Lord God on an ongoing, very consistent, regular basis, you're risking drift. And drift doesn't work out well. Don't drift. Be intentional with those spiritual disciplines. And by the way, we have two new brochures available in our um, court. uh, Thank you. Foyer. We have this one, which is about our 50-plus ministry, our retired community. We have excellent ministry to our retired community. This is a well-done brochure. All of that's available on the website, but if you just want to pick one up, take it, learn more about it, or give it to a friend, please do that. And and then we have this one, PCC Small Groups. And inside, it lists all of our current, ongoing small groups. One way to be intentional about not drifting is to come together with others, talk about Jesus together, share your faith together, Read the Bible together. Pray together. It's not magic, but sometimes God works in that. And it's it's just a good thing to do for drift prevention, we may call it. Okay? Don't drift. You're not going to lose your salvation, but you can lose touch. And that's not helpful in life. All right, enough of that. So pay attention to those things. And then uh, here's the blessing, and after the blessing, we will have uh, prayer uh, partners to pray with you. Uh, Some of our elders will be in the front, and others who can just pray with you, for you, uh, about whatever is uh, in in your heart going on in, in your life. Here's the blessing. May you remain focused, intentionally focused, on the Jesus who calls you family. Amen.